this long biblical tradition of crying out to God under difficult circumstances. Um, and we can see that in, in fact, God does hear, God is there and Jesus knows that or he wouldn't be crying out to God even as he complains. And, and then of course, Psalm 22 is also evolves on to an expression of hope and trust that God's reign will be known and God will vindicate the righteous. This, 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 Let's be honest, talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. It is my honor and my pleasure to bring on two uh, fellows that I've just now kind of uh, was introduced to over the past year. They are just fantastic guys that teach at Sanford University. Uh, Both of them are very accomplished, and I invited them a month or so ago uh, to come on board, and and let's just talk about uh, the Old Testament and especially um, how we're using it as Christians. The first is Dr. Champa. He is the chair uh, professor at Howard College of Art and Science, uh, Biblical and Religious Studies at Sanford University. Uh, he came to Sanford in August 2018 uh, when he was at, uh, the, is it the NIDIA? Is that how you say it? NIDA. The NIDA. The NIDA, the NIDA, the NIDA Institute for Biblical Scholarship at American Bible Society, where he provided advanced professional development in biblical studies, Bible translation, and scripture engagement for leaders in that area of scholarship. I'm reading right off his bio. It, I could go on and on, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you the link in the description uh, where you can get, find these people online, um, especially uh, all their accomplishments. Uh, the second is Dr. Kahn's, Will Kahn's. He's uh, Associate Professor of Howard College of Art and Science, Biblical and Religious Studies. He joined the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies in 2019 after teaching at Whitworth University for six years. Uh, before Whitworth, he spent another six years in the UK where he completed his MLIT at the University of St. Andrews and his PhD at the University of Cambridge. Uh, then he taught at the University of Oxford. Hey, both of you, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having thank us. Thank Yeah, I, I mean, I'm so excited about this topic. Uh, this is a very interesting topic and in, in a lot of ways has a lot to say about the world that we're living in today. So I'm going to throw this one for you first, uh, Dr. Will. Uh, I'm just going to call you Will from this point on. Is that all right? Yeah, please do. All right. So, Will, I'm going to throw this to you because you sent me in a really interesting article uh, that has to do with Job, especially in a lot of Job and its uh, discussion on suffering. Can you give a, me a little synopsis of what that was about? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the pastor at my church here in Birmingham uh, asked me when this whole pandemic started uh, if I might have something that I have written up before, if I might be willing to write something up reflecting on how the Bible might help us think through what's going on around us. And I have for a long time been, I think that it would be fair to say, obsessed with the book of Job. And that obsession actually goes back to a time when I was serving in a church in Nairobi, Kenya, and I got really ill. And, uh, I, during that time, decided to read through the book of Job. And what I found there uh, really shocked me 
I mean, I know that I'd probably read the book through before, but I didn't have the life experience to really connect with it. Uh, and in the midst of suffering and reading it through, uh, the answers that the, the book offered were not at all what I expected. The answers that it offered to how I should respond to suffering and what that suffering meant. And so um, the article that I sent you is just reflecting a little bit on how some of the things that I learned from reading the book then, I can see connecting with what we are all going through <laughs> together now. I mean, one of, just to start off with, Job, at the beginning of the book, he's presented to us as this righteous man. Uh, he has this incredible wealth, and you might think that his righteousness and his wealth could save him from suffering. In fact, I find it really interesting that in chapter 1, verse 5, it says that he offered sacrifices continually for his children just in case they might have sinned which might be there to show how pious he was, but it might also suggest he is afraid. Right? He wants to prevent suffering at all costs. And he thinks that maybe if I offer all these sacrifices, then I'll be safe. And I think to some degree, um, that anxiety that Job has there, which we're all feeling anxiety right now. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, it's, it seems like something I'm struggling with daily because there's so much uncertainty around us. That anxiety is reflected in the way that Job behaves, I think. And I think that's part of what uh, the Satan is capitalizing on when he questions Job's faith and says, does he fear God for nothing? Uh, if he actually faces the suffering he's so afraid of, will he actually remain faithful? Um, and just on, on one side, just to get at our big topic here, Right off the bat, Job shows us the way that the Old Testament is so honest and insightful and raw in the way it presents exactly the struggles that we're often facing in our own lives. And so we can see that in Job, but that only continues when we encounter the way that Job himself responds to that suffering. And this is really the most shocking thing about the book, in my view, which is at first, Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's usually what we hear from Job, if we hear from Job in a church kind of setting. But Job doesn't stop there, right? Chapter three, we enter into this dialogue between Job and his friends. And in that dialogue, Job is very honest about how hard uh, it has been for him to face what he perceives to be, and which actually, in some sense, the book says to us is unjust suffering. He is a righteous man. He doesn't deserve what he's facing. Um, and so he says things, even to God, that seem really borderline, right? So like chapter 10, verse 3, he says to God, does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the schemes of the wicked? What's going on there? Is that an appropriate way for us to respond to God in the midst of suffering. Uh, and that's one, of, that's one of the big things that uh, when I first read through Job back when I was in Kenya, and then even right through right, doing my PhD on Job, I really wrestled with is how could this text in the Old Testament be relevant still to us today? Is it really the way that we as Christians should interact with God? And just to pull together what uh, my response to your question then, what I think is going on in Job is 
Job is giving us an example of what it means to endure in our faith as we face suffering by wrestling honestly with God on the basis of that faith. That when Job says to God, does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the schemes of of the wicked and other things like that, Job believes that that's not the way that God wants to act in the world. That's not the way that God behaves. He believes that God isn't in fact just. Job is doing exactly the same thing that Abraham does in Genesis 18, for example, when God is considering wiping out Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham says to him, um, should not the judge of all the earth do what is just, right? There's a basic assumption of God's justice and Job is working on the basis of that assumption. Um, and so Job presents for us probably the strongest example of what it means to wrestle with God. In, you know, in the Old Testament, Israel, the definition given to the name of the people uh, is wrestles with God. So this is affirmed for us as a way to interact with God. Uh, and even in the New Testament, and this is something that I hope we'll get back to in a minute, and in that uh, Dr. Champa can certainly shed a lot of light on for us. But even in the New Testament, this type of wrestling with God, I would argue, is affirmed. Jesus has this parable that he tells of the unjust judge, or it's sometimes um, called the, the persistent widow. Uh, and this is a widow who pleads over and over again to this unjust judge to intervene on her behalf. And eventually he does because of the persistence of her pleading. And Jesus concludes that parable by saying, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Mm -hmm. So I think what Job is helping us to do in the midst of this pandemic is train ourselves to lament, encourage us to cry out to God for justice and to see that crying out as an expression of our faith. So uh, we'll bring you in, Dr. Roy, here. Dr. Will has has shown what I would say is a legitimate interpretation in light of, of being a Christian in light of Christ. And in, in dealing with the Old Testament, going all the way back to the first century church, the early church, They've had to wrestle with what do we do with our text, right? Or this this corpus of individual text being put together. Uh, so, and you even have controversies that m- some of the readers might not know, uh, Marcion controversies where they just jettisoned the Old Testament. So, can you give us uh, give us a light into how how has the church dealt with the Old Testament in the past? How do we deal? You know, how do the New Testament writers deal with the Old Testament, and how do we deal with the New Test the Old Testament? Well, thank you for asking such simple questions, Matthew. Yeah, no doubt. No, answer <laughs> that in 20 minutes. <laughs> when I, you mentioned I, I worked at uh, American Bible Society. I did for four years. Before that, I worked uh, as a professor of New Testament studies at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, uh, where I was eventually the chair of the department or the division of biblical and religious, or no, that's where I am now, the chair of the division of, of biblical studies at Gordon-Conwell. And you remind me of that because when I gave my lecture, Uh, as a candidate for a faculty position at Gordon-Conwell, I gave a lecture on the use of the Old Testament in the New. And I still remember this was, uh, I started my 
my full-time position there in 2001. So this is right around the time of uh, the whole Y2K. But I remember um, one of the things that I said during my lecture is, if you're looking for someone who's got this all figured out, the use of the Old Testament and the New, then I'm not your man. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is something that I think is going to fascinate me for the remainder of my life, and it has been the primary area of my my scholarship. But I think I've learned some things uh, enough that I've taught courses on the use of the Old Testament and the New enough times to suggest that I have uh, some things to share with students, but I don't want to suggest that I have everything all figured out. But clearly, one of the things that I notice is, uh, starting with the New Testament use of Scripture, New Testament use of the Old Testament, you know, virtually every book of the New Testament starts us off with some sort of reference to the Old Testament. Every New Testament author wants to frame their message in light of uh, some understood narrative framework that comes from what we would call the Old Testament and what, what they would simply know of as, as Scripture. So if we start in the Gospel of Matthew, we jump right into a genealogy, which is usually not anyone's favorite form of literature, uh, but here this genealogy is, is structured uh, according to, you know, this series of 14 generations from Abraham to David to the exile and to Christ. Um, and, I, and, and as is often the case with the New Testament use of the Old Testament, it's, it's kind of like reading a good story where they don't always come out at the end and say, now the moral of the story is X, Y, or Z. They count on you to dot the I's and cross the T's. But here in this opening genealogy, Matthew is suggesting a way of understanding the whole history of God's relationship with Israel and suggesting that Jesus Christ is the, the fulfillment, the culmination of promises made to Abraham about bringing blessing to all nations and to families all over the earth. Uh, and then promises made to David that this blessing would come through a Davidic king uh, who would reign forever and over all of creation in a way that would represent God's justice and his righteousness. And that, and that somehow this didn't result in, in what people might have hoped for, but brought us through exile as the people of God had disobeyed and had strayed and had brought judgment on themselves. And then the next key step in the history of God's relationship with his people, according to Matthew's uh, genealogy, is the coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so you're just getting started with this whole gospel, but you already have some inkling of a framework in which the whole story of Jesus is supposed to be understood. And of course, there's a lot more use of scripture as we work our way through the gospel. But if you jump to the gospel of Mark, Sure enough, right off the bat, you're quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 and a mixture of parts of Exodus and Malachi. Uh, and you're putting the coming of Jesus Christ in the framework of the promise that God's presence is going to be returned. We'll, we'll ret that the promise that God's presence will come back to his people and that God will bring blessing and favor where there has been judgment. And you jump ahead in the, to the opening of the Gospel of Luke. And right away you have these references to these, these saints, these godly men and women who are waiting for the redemption of Israel um, or the consolation of, of Jerusalem. And these are also themes coming from Isaiah chapter 40, and, and then John the Baptist shows up again preaching the, the message of Isaiah 40. Or you jump to the Gospel of John, 
And right away, we have these, these echoes or allusions to Genesis 1, where God created. Um, and when he created, he did so by speaking. And John reminds us that this is the word together with God in the beginning, who is God, who creates all that there is, and yet who, was, who came to his people and was rejected, but now offers the opportunity to, of sonship to be a child of God to anyone who will receive his son, Jesus Christ. And we can go on and on. You jump to, the God, to the, Paul's letter to the Romans, and it's remarkable if you look at the opening verses, and we remember that it, uh, a letter in that time would normally just start with, with the name of the author and the name of the addressee, so Paul to the Romans. But if you go and look at the opening verses of Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, he identifies himself, Paul, an apostle, but if you look at all that text between there and when he finally gets around to saying <laughs> to, to the saints in Rome, and it's just full of this theology about the gospel of, his, of God's son, Jesus Christ, who is promised in the scriptures through the prophets. Um, and it goes on and on that virtually every book sets out in the very beginning to say, if you want to understand what this story, uh, this letter about Jesus Christ is all about, you can't understand it unless you have a framework built in the Old Testament, in a framework that assumes a kind of a story, an unfolding story that's going to culminate in this figure, Jesus Christ, um, who is coming and has begun to bring about the fulfillment of God's promises of salvation. Um, and so, uh, and of course, all of this material is, tends to be very much focused on kind of eschatology, Jewish eschatology, Jewish hopes for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the one day there'll be a resurrection of the dead. One day God will pour out his spirit on all people. And in all of these eschatological hopes that we find in the Old Testament, the New Testament says mm -hmm. these are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So I, I find that as a New Testament specialist, I'm constantly taking my class, my students when we're teaching on the New Testament, we're spending half of our time in the Old Testament because you just can't understand what any of this is about uh, unless we start in the Old Testament. But going back to your original question about how they deal with it, I mean, I've touched on part of that, which is to suggest that there's uh, one key part of it is getting this sense of an overall narrative structure, that there's there's this ongoing storyline of what God is up to, and New Testament authors understand this story and that Jesus Christ is the culmination of this story. And then they read the rest of Scripture in light of Jesus Christ, just as they are interpreting Jesus Christ in light of the rest of Scripture. I mean, there's much more that can be said. Um, there are ways in which New Testament interpretation of Scripture is similar to Jewish interpretation of scripture of that time and ways in which it's naturally different. Some of the methods seem similar, but certainly the conclusions are different and very much centered in Jesus Christ in a way that um, in many ways that were not anticipated until Christ came. So let's, uh, now let's put this into practice now. Now we'll go back to Dr. Will and his use of Job. Uh, and let's like tease it out in real time and in practice here for maybe leaders. And I'll, and I'll throw it to you again, Will, and both of y'all can come in here. Um, let, let's take kind of what I would consider a road to Emmaus approach, like Jesus is pointing, pointing at Scripture, you know, in order to make sense of himself and what he did, the framework as you talked about. What are some do's and don'ts? Now, if I'm a pastor using Job right now in the midst of this pandemic, 
give me, Dr. Will, some do's and do don'ts as you read individual books like Job. Uh, what are my parameters? What, what am I allowed to do and not to do as a Christian as I'm reading and then preaching the text to people that need to hear it? That's a great question. Uh, let me start with the don'ts, okay? So um, I've already alluded to one don't that I think people do with Job as well as many other books in the Old Testament, which is just to pick their favorite parts and ignore the context of... So people like Job saying, the Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. They sing to praise him. You know, blessed be the name of the Lord. But, you know, I often mention to my students, you've probably sung that chorus. Do you know what context that's coming from when you say, blessed be the name of the Lord? Uh, so the first don't would be, don't cherry pick, right? Um, uh, so that would be the first thing. Uh, the second would be, and this is along with it, but if you're particularly trying to make the text move in a Christian direction, you know, you, you talked about the Luke 24 type of way of, of seeing it. Don't just read Job and jump. If you jump from Job 121, where he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Don't just jump straight to Job 1925. I know my Redeemer lives. <laughs> and then, oh, there's Christ. We found Christ in Job. Now we're done with Job. We can put that book aside and move on to something else. Uh, because I think that Christ is in Job in a much deeper and more profound way than just Job at one point saying, I know my Redeemer lives. Uh, in fact, I think Job is pushed to the conclusion that he must have a Redeemer because of experiencing the effect of suffering in the world in experiencing the distance between himself and God as he faces that suffering. Uh, and so the, what is going on when Job even says that one thing in Job 19.25 that does point us toward Christ is much deeper and more profound than just a simple statement of faith, right? Um, so that, that would be another mistake. The third mistake Job gives us as a kind of foil, uh, which is to proof text which is to take random, well, they're probably not random. You have a reason why you're picking this verse from the Old Testament, but you take it out of its context and then you apply it to life in a particular way outside of its context. And the way that Job teaches us that lesson is through Job's friends. Job's friends are examples of bad theologians and bad interpreters of scripture, right? They take theological ideas and they apply them to Job and his situation uh, inappropriately, right? They're trying to say to Job, look, God is just. He punishes the wicked. He rewards the righteous. You need to understand that, Job. But we know as readers that Job is righteous. He's not being punished by God for being wicked. But because Job's friends are proof texting, uh, they get to the point where they feel they have to accuse Job of wickedness, which is what they end up doing by the end of the dialogue between him and Job. Uh, so don't just pick your favorite parts. Don't, don't make that, as Spurgeon says, beeline to Christ. Make sure that the beeline to Christ goes in line with the rest of the text. And then don't proof text uh, from Old Testament texts uh, in order to make particular points outside of that broader context. Those are the three important points that we see in, in Job, at least, as we try and apply it today as Christians. Well, that's good, but that takes time, right? I mean, you have to sit with the text and be with the text and understand the framework takes time. So uh, that would be my cry out to those that are leaders to take time with the text. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Roy, so give me some 
Give me some books of the Old Testament that might not be used, that could be used in a time of crisis or anxiety. Hmm. In terms of the ones that might not be used. As much. I mean, what are, what are often books of the Old Testament that are disregarded? And maybe not, may, we'll just take the anxiety out of it. What, what are books in the Old Testament that are usually just never, never dealt with because nobody knows what to do with them? Well, of course, nobody knows. Uh, people don't tend to know what to do with books like Leviticus. Um, or they, they may have some idea of what to do with Chronicles, but certainly not when they get to the genealogies again. Um, but I think, you know, each of these books, one of the, when I teach uh, the overview course we have called Biblical Foundations, one of the themes that I ask my students to pay attention to in whatever book we're looking at is a theme of the presence of God. And that's an important theme, obviously, right from the Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis with God's presence in the garden. And then what happens when humanity is kicked out of the garden and then there's not a particular place and time to go and meet with God. And, and so the different kind of experience the patriarchs have of the presence of God and then what a difference it makes when, when God shows up uh, visibly to lead his people uh, out of Egypt and then provides for the temple. But so then jumping back to the book of Leviticus, you know, here's a book uh, that establishes, you know, the kind of framework in which God's people can experience his presence in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple, the, the importance of, of sacrifices and how these sacrifices uh, provide opportunities for fellowship between God and his people and, and between the people of God at the same time and what they say about holiness and the need for holiness and the, the need for cleansing. Um, and so whenever we're dealing with a time of anxiety, one of the questions is, you know, is God still in control? Can I trust him? Um, can I find him? Does he see me? Um, you know, I, I, I think about these things. Uh, they, they show up in so many different uh, passages. This isn't Christmas time, but you know, I'm, I'm often reminded of, of the, the nativity scene where you have Joseph and Mary um, and, you know, they are, they have to go off to, to Bethlehem and she's pregnant and she's giving birth and she's laying her firstborn child in a feeding trough. Um, and in our, in our imaginations, we tend to kind of blend that together with a scene where the angels are showing up to the shepherds and there's glory and the presence of God and, and, and you know, or we tie it in with, with the Magi who are being led here, there's a, there's a star that leads them. And so, you know, that the presence of God is there. But if I were Joseph and Mary, one of the questions I might be asking myself is, does God see this? I mean, this is going to be the Christ. And here we are. I mean, they don't see the glory. They don't see the angels. They don't see the star. What they see is that they've gone through this trek. And now here they are, instead of they won't even make room for them in the in the spare room or the inn, wherever you, you know, we can go into the exegesis of the text there, but there's no room for them where you'd think they might make some room. Instead, they have to lay this baby in a feeding trough. And at first, you know, in that story, you read about how the baby is wrapped up in, uh, in, in this, uh, in these, uh, we'll flag this and fix this later. <laughs> uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, so Joseph and Mary, they lay their baby in a feeding trough, 
But later on in the next scenes, it's the feeding trough, the fact that the baby is there is the thing that tips these shepherds off to the fact that, in fact, this is the Christ. Um, but that kind of question, does God see what's going on? Does he even know what's going on? Can he see me? Is a question we actually find all the way through the Old Testament. I mean, it's related to the question that Jesus cries out on the cross, where he, going back to the Old Testament, where he cries out the opening line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and so Jesus is entering into the, the kind of tradition that Will's been talking about of this, this long biblical tradition of crying out to God under difficult circumstances. Um, and we can see that, in, in fact, God does hear. God is there, and Jesus knows that, or he wouldn't be crying out to God even as he complains. And, and then, of course, Psalm 22 is also evolves on to an expression of hope and trust that God's reign will be known and God will vindicate the righteous. But going back to the Old Testament again, the book of Numbers uh, tends to be neglected. But another question besides, um, um, there are various, many of the minor prophets I think are, are skipped over. Most people, many people probably don't know much about uh, the book of Habakkuk, except Habakkuk 2.4, because Paul quotes it. Um, but I find Paul's quoting, and, and actually I've, I've written an essay arguing that in fact there's lots of evidence that Paul is dependent upon in interpreting Habakkuk 2.4 at various places throughout the books of Romans and Galatians. But I think it's clear that Paul has wrestled with not just Habakkuk 2.4, but the opening part of the book where Habakkuk is complaining to God again. You know, the opening verses of Habakkuk are about Habakkuk crying out to God, don't you see this injustice that's going on all around us? Why is it that justice is never done? There's violence in the land. God, what are you going to do about this? And if you are reading Paul too simply and thinking about how Paul might interpret Habakkuk, you might falsely imagine that Paul thinks that Habakkuk, Habakkuk's question is, dear God, there are all these wicked people around here. Is there some way you can find it in your heart to let such sinners into heaven? But that's not what Habakkuk's crying out for. Habakkuk is crying out and saying, God, are you going to do something about this? Are you going to act in such a way that the injustice and the violence are dealt with? And when we get around to, and of course, God says he's going to send the, the Chaldeans, and, and then Habakkuk doesn't understand what's up with that because they're more unrighteous than, than the Israelites. But by the time you give it to Habakkuk 2.4, where God says the you know, the, the righteous will live by faith. And I actually think Paul probably understood that to read the righteous by faith will live based on he, the way he throws the terms righteousness and faith together. And especially in the opening chapters of Romans and then treats living as a separate motif. Um, we can go into that uh, another time. But I think Paul's been wrestling with Habakkuk. Um, and he's been wrestling as well. If you get to Romans 3, we have the whole series of Psalms, which are further complaints. Hmm. Um, that, and, and these are written by people who are living in a time of anxiety, a time of stress, a time of struggle. And so Paul quotes snippets from all of these different complaints about the, the, the wicked and how their throats are open graves, the poison of vipers on their lips, and he goes on and on. And if you were only reading Romans 3, you might think that Paul is taking these verses out of context simply to make the theological point that we're all sinners and that he's really not sensitive at all 
to the complaints and the real concerns of those who utter these complaints, which really is still just like Habakkuk's concern. God, are you going to do something about this? Are you going to intervene? But of course, by the time we get to Romans 8, Paul has walked through not only the fact that we're guilty and that we can find forgiveness and justification, but how God is bringing about new life, a whole community that walks in newness of life, that has transformed a community that's able to fulfill, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, and eventually, still in Romans 8, the liberation of all of creation. And by the time you get to Romans 8, you realize Paul has actually dealt with the concerns that Habakkuk raised. He's dealt with the concerns of the psalmist, of all of these people who are complaining about these things. But to get that, you actually have to do what you were just saying a minute ago, Matthew. You have to sit with the text, and not just with an isolated verse, but you have to sit with the text in its larger context. You have to move from Romans 1 through Romans 3 and make sure you get up to Romans 8, and then eventually, of course, to Romans 15 and 16 to see how all of this is fitting together into a narrative that says that you can be in the worst of circumstances and it's appropriate to cry out to God and even to complain to God and to wonder and ask, when is he going to intervene? And yet still be aware that God has promised that he has a plan and in Jesus Christ, he is going to answer all of these concerns that we're talking about. And, the, and these similar kinds of concerns show up through all the prophets, and especially through the various minor prophets, I would say. Yeah, it's fun to think that somebody like Paul, who was so well learned in the Old Testament, you imagine how his hermeneutic just went, I guess, I mean, nowhere, there's no telling how things changed for him when he added Jesus to the mix, per se. Uh, the things that were released, the, the mysteries that were unveiled for somebody like uh, Paul that was so well versed in, in, in the Old Testament, and then, and then Jesus comes into the mix, per se. Uh, Guys, this is just, for those that are listening, this is kind of a tease. I mean, we could go two more hours with this guy. At least I could. Um, but this is the kind of thing that I wanted to bring them on and at least showcase uh, a couple of different things. One, I'm always in tactical faith trying to showcase that we have smart people too, uh, in which we do. And I'm, I'm so impressed not only with that, but also so blessed to know that both of these gentlemen are here in Birmingham and they're teaching at Sanford University so, uh, Dr. Will, give me a little bit, and then, we'll, of course, we'll go to Dr. Roy, but give me a little bit of what do you do at Samford? What, what, are, your, what are some of the classes you teach? What are some of the – I know that you like wisdom literature because you're like me. Uh, just give me a little tease of, of the things that you're working on, and, and if somebody was interested in coming to Samford uh, at the Religious Studies and Biblical Studies Department, what are the kind of the things they would get? Sure. Uh, I'm going to come back to that wisdom literature comment in a second. But uh, <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> yeah, so our, our real bread and butter in our department is the course that we have the real privilege to teach to every single Samford undergraduate, which is called Biblical Foundations. Uh, and that course, I'm really excited to teach it because I think it's all there in the name, Biblical Foundations. What we're trying to do in this course it is give students a foundational understanding of the Bible, right? You know, there's, um, unfortunately, um, people have lost their biblical literacy. And actually, just since we're on the topic of the Old Testament in the church, I do want to put in a quick plug for a book called The Old Testament is Dying by Brent Strawn, who teaches at Duke, but actually has a daughter at Sanford right now. Um, but Brent makes a great point about 
he's, when he says the Old Testament is dying, he's saying the Old Testament is like a language. And languages die if we don't use them. And he thinks that if the Old Testament dies, the New Testament will soon follow. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is fight against the death of the, the biblical language by teaching every undergraduate at Samford the basics of what it means to speak in a biblical way about God, the world, and one another. A little bit like we require every student to take languages, right? other foreign languages. We're also teaching this biblical foundations course. But the other way that I read that title of that course is it's not just foundational knowledge of the Bible, but because Samford is a Christian university, we also see the Bible as foundational for students learning uh, and for their life going out of Samford. And so we want to provide them uh, with that foundational biblical understanding of God themselves, their neighbors, and the world around them. So that's a really exciting course to get an opportunity to teach as, as students from all different majors come in there. Um, so you mentioned wisdom literature. So uh, I don't know if you're tweaking me a little bit there, but so I just uh, published a book called An Obituary for Wisdom Literature because I don't like the category wisdom literature. I think it takes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job and pulls them out of their context in the Bible and separates them off as something else and then makes them resonate more with modern philosophy than with the ancient biblical worldview. Um, but I do teach a course on wisdom, the concept uh, in the Bible and beyond, in which I look at the concept of wisdom, not just in, a, in the context of those three biblical books that we most often associate it with, with it, but actually explore the way that wisdom is that one of these concepts that pulls the entire Bible together. Now, Jesus is the wisdom of God, as is proclaimed to us in the New Testament. And we actually see wisdom throughout the Old Testament, not just in those three books. And so I'm teaching that course uh, this semester with students, and it's been really exciting to see the things that they've discovered. That's one of these upper level courses within our major where we have smaller classes and we can um, go at it kind of in a seminar style way not too different from the way that you might study these things in a graduate setting. Uh, and so it's exciting for students to be able to dig into these big topics with a professor in a more intimate kind of context. Uh, and then I'm preparing a course that um, I'll be teaching not too long from now on what I call defiant faith, which is exactly the thing we've been talking about here um, of wrestling with God in the midst of suffering and that course I'm excited about, I received a grant from Sanford in order to develop it, uh, will be a service learning course. So we're not only going to be studying within the classroom, but students are going to be going out into the community and serving people who are suffering as a way of adding an experiential component, learning from those who are suffering as they are reflecting on suffering in the Bible. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. Can we go another hour talking about that? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Dr. Roy, I know your heart. Uh, so Will gave me a little sense of what's going on in an apartment. But you actually, before uh, all this pandemic started, you, you actually had, uh, you were going to invite pastors to come and listen to speakers. I know you, you, one of the things you want to do with your department is make it more, uh, not necessarily community outreach, but more available for maybe leaders and lay people that want to learn more. Is that right? That's right. We want to, we want to bring in uh, speakers um, who can speak to issues that are important to pastors, to churches, to, to Christians trying to live out their lives. 
uh, in these, uh, I would have said this before the pandemic hit, but these, uh, these challenging times in which we live, they've just become challenging in new uh, and unusual ways uh, in the last couple of months. But um, so, yes, we have uh, the real privilege of having a, a number of special lectureships where we can bring people in from uh, around the country or from uh, overseas. Uh, and so one of the, my passions is to, to bring in people that can speak to the, the wider community and especially to to pastors and, and people who are just trying to follow Christ and, and who can benefit from uh, the voices of scholars um, uh, who come from outside of Birmingham usually and sometimes from within as well. In some ways similar to what you're doing with uh, Tactical Faith. Uh, very much appreciative of, of what you're doing through this ministry. Sure, and we hope to do stuff with, with, with your department in the future uh, as well. I'm just so glad and honored that both of you have come on. Uh, you've been listening to Dr. Rory Champa and Dr. Will Kahns from Sanford University, the Howard College of Art and Science Biblical and Religious Studies Department. Uh, just to get a little tease of, of if you're in the state of Alabama and if you're some of those listeners that live and listen beyond here, uh, go check them out. Again, I'm going to put in the show notes uh, where you can connect to them and, and some of their books off Amazon. Uh, thank you both for coming on. And I, and I hope this is not the last time because it sounds like there's a whole bunch of things that we could talk about. Sure. Yeah, thanks thank so much for so having much. us, Matthew. All right. We'll see you later. <laughs>